Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm your host, Prudence Robertson. Where the rubber meets the road. As peaceful pro-life sidewalk counseling meets global opposition, what restrictions still exist for free speech in the U.S.? On this week's episode, we unpack the challenges that these courageous men and women face, from lawsuits to jail sentences and everything in between. Mark Rienzi, CEO of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, unpacks the Supreme Court decision Hill versus Colorado and how it still impacts the front lines of the abortion battle today newborn baby beatified. For the first time in history, the Catholic Church honors an entire family, including a newborn baby, with beatification. We'll explain their ongoing journey to sainthood that's grounded in sacrifice and love. Helping to find hope. September is Suicide Prevention Month, and tragically, the suicide rate in the United States is steadily climbing. Catholic psychiatrist Dr. Aaron Cariotti joins us to share how we can love and support our friends and family members who may be vulnerable to suicidal thoughts and protect and defend the dignity and value of their lives. To kick off our show tonight, we've got a few stories to update you on from the states. On the abortion pill front in West Virginia, the group GenBioPro was denied the ability in court to expand their sale of chemical abortion drugs in the strongly pro-life state. Moving west into Arizona, the state Supreme Court will soon reconsider a case that was decided by lower courts and limits Arizona's pro-life law. While the state legislature has advanced a law banning most abortions, the limit that is currently in effect only limits abortions at 15 weeks gestation or later. And even farther to the West Coast, in Seattle, Washington, a church community is being ordered to pay for abortions in a clear violation of their deeply held religious beliefs. For details on all of these cases, we're joined now by Denise Harley, who serves as senior counsel at the Alliance Defending Freedom. Denise, thanks for being here. Let's first address this good news out of West Virginia. GenBioPro has been told they can't dispense abortion drugs, and we're told they need to stop trying to challenge the state's pro-life laws. What else do we need to know? Well, this is an interesting example of the post-Dobbs type challenge that the abortion industry is launching. Um, West Virginia, like every other state now, has the ability to protect health and safety of women and protect unborn life from the harms of abortion. And that's what West Virginia has done through its laws, which completely protect life from conception. But the chemical abortion drug manufacturer, GenBioPro, has come into court and tried to strike down West Virginia's pro-life laws, saying that they have some sort of right based on FDA approval, to sell their deadly drugs throughout the state. Hmm. Um, and we're so happy that the court has rejected most of those arguments. Right. And what's the broader context of that case in light of the ongoing litigation that could take mail-order abortion pills off the market altogether? Well, this is sort of their belt and suspenders approach. Um, we have a very strong case that the FDA approval was unlawful from the beginning. Um, but the abortion industry, just in case, is also going around and trying to strike down state pro-life laws mm. um, in case the FDA drug does allow um, drugs to stay on the market. Sneaky. Um, now, on to Arizona. Despite the fact that Arizona advanced a law to ban most abortions shortly after the overturn of Roe, current enacted law only stops abortions of babies who are 15 weeks or older. What's happening at the state Supreme Court that could change that? Yeah, this is so important. So Arizona, like a lot of other states, has passed multiple laws over the years, before Roe, while Roe was in effect, and then after Roe, 
was overturned to make it clear that the people of Arizona want to protect life. So Arizona has a very protective um, pro-life law um, that allows almost no abortions, and then also a 15-week law that it passed while Roe was in effect. Um, and instead of just, you know, interpreting the law as it's written, which is that the pro-life law um, takes priority and, and protects against elective abortion, the lower court so far has said that somehow the 15-week law uh, erases the other pro-life laws from the books. So only a 15-week protection exists. So we're really excited to make the argument to the state Supreme Court and very hopeful that the um, great protections against abortion will go into effect. Mm, good to know. And we'll continue to track that. And to wrap things up, Denise, this is perhaps the most alarming of these stories that we're looking at today. A church in the Seattle area is being told they have to pay for abortions for their own employees. Um, break this down for us. Yes. Well, no church should have to be paying for abortions, of course. Um, and so Cedar Park Assembly of God in the state of Washington is subject to Washington's very pro-abortion law, which forces them to cover elective abortions in their insurance plans. Um, California tried to do the same thing, and Alliance Defending Freedom was successful in having that law enjoined, and we hope for the same outcome here. Um, but so far, it's been an uphill battle because the attorney general in Washington as a very pro-abortion government official and is fighting very hard to try to force churches to do something that violates their deeply held religious beliefs that um, every life is sacred and made by God. Wow. Well, we're so grateful for the work that you're doing to protect religious liberty on all of these fronts. Denise Harley of Alliance Defending Freedom, thanks for being here. Thanks, Prudence. Back here in the Capitol, a sidewalk counselor named Deborah Vitaliano is fighting at our nation's highest court for the rights of people like her to help save lives. Vitaliano has petitioned the Supreme Court to reconsider a case from 2000, known as Hill versus Colorado. The decision in the case allowed Colorado to establish 100-foot buffer zones around abortion facilities. This led some other states and many smaller localities to institute buffer zones as well. Vitaliano, for example, hails from Westchester County in New York, where authorities have demanded a 100-foot buffer zone around abortion facilities. Though the Supreme Court justices have made no indication yet that they will take up her case, she's gained mounting support from people across the country who are being blocked from saving lives due to these buffer zones. Joining us now is Mark Rienzi, president and CEO of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. He is the lead attorney on this case. Mark, thanks for being here. Beckett is defending Deborah Vitaliano in this case. So can you share a bit of her story and why you're bringing this to the high court? Sure. Uh, Deborah Vitaliano is a Catholic woman who uh, has worked with special needs children her entire life and believes that uh, believes in the sanctity of all human life and wants to help women and wants to help save babies. And she wants to be out on the sidewalk offering help to women in need. But Westchester County, following this old, bad Supreme Court decision called Hill, mm -hmm. has made it illegal to approach people and just offer them help unless you first get express consent for the conversation. And that's inconsistent with the First Amendment. And unlike the way we do you know, speech with our neighbors all over the country on any other issue. Mm, I see. And Hill versus Colorado is not a case that most people know about, but it seems to have had a broad impact on people's ability to save lives on the sidewalk. About how many localities have buffer zones? And, and why haven't people talked about this before? 
Well, um, it varies. There are different kinds of buffer zones in different places, but uh, several states have them. Several big cities like Chicago, for example, mm. has one. So these zones exist, and what they do is they make it harder for pro-life sidewalk counselors to offer women help and to offer them an alternative. And, and we know from the studies that women who seek abortions often do it for very tangible, real-world reasons, like they need help or they need somebody to support them. So many of these women actually really welcome the conversation when it can be offered to them. Right. And yeah, absolutely. And are you hopeful that the Supreme Court is going to take up this case? Last year, five of the justices said that Hill that the Hill decision was a major departure from our nation's protection of free speech, as you just alluded to. Yes. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court has recently said that the decision was a, a departure from the First Amendment. And the truth is, when the case was decided, the ACLU said the sidewalk counselors were right. Liberal law professors, conservative law professors across the spectrum said this is not how we do free speech law. So it's, it's a bad decision. Mm. It was a bad decision when it was made. And I think the court um, really does need to just fix it and make it so that people can speak freely on public sidewalks and really offer help to their neighbors in need. Yeah. And I'm curious if you could explain kind of the way that states have adopted um, these buffer zones. I understand Colorado adopted one after this case was decided, obviously, um, and other states have as well. How does that come up against uh, pro-life laws that ban abortion in those states? Yeah. So what happens is the state legislatures, often at the behest of, of the abortion clinics, pass laws to make it harder to engage in sidewalk counseling. And so this particular kind of law some people call it a mother-may-I law, says you can't get within eight feet of somebody within the zone hmm. unless you first ask for permission, which, of course, is just not the way anybody interacts with their fellow citizens in the normal course at all. Right. And so states have these laws. The real shame of it is the place where these laws are cropping up more and more is the jurisdictions that choose to allow abortion. So you have more abortions happening in the pro-abortion jurisdictions. Mm. And in those same jurisdictions, they're making it harder to offer women in need the kinds of help that, that often let them make the choice to keep their baby. Mm. Very frustrating for those pro-life sidewalk counselors, I can imagine. Uh, Mark, before I let you go, five pro-life advocates are currently facing a potential prison sentence after entering an abortion facility and allegedly violating the FACE Act. Now, some pro-lifers question legit the legitimacy of that law. Clearly now in this case, the constitutionality of Hill versus Colorado is in question. What's your take on the legal attacks that we're seeing against pro-life Americans across the board who are often the last line of defense between children and their killers? Yeah, there's no doubt we're seeing very aggressive enforcement of those kinds of laws yeah. by the by the federal government, by the Biden administration. Um, and to me, I think the aggressive enforcement of those laws just really drives home the fact that we at least should be able to all agree that peaceful conversations on public sidewalks, the government shouldn't be putting people in jail for. So they've got laws for violence. They've got laws for obstruction. They are super aggressive about enforcing those. But the idea that we would also give them the ability to imprison people who are just trying to offer women a, a peaceful alternative on a public sidewalk, mm. that, that's really bad for women and it's bad for babies and it's, and it's wrong and it's unconstitutional. Mm. Well said. Mark Rienzi of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Prudence. 
And now for more news impacting our nation and world. For the first time in the Catholic Church's history, an entire family, including a newborn baby, will be beatified. During World War II, Joseph and Victoria Olma provided refuge to eight Jewish people in their home in southeast Poland. In 1944, Nazi police surrounded their house and executed Joseph, Victoria, and their seven children, one of whom was born as Victoria was martyred. Last year, Pope Francis recognized the Olma family's martyrdom and heroic sacrifice. The Olma's beatification ceremony will take place in their hometown in Poland on September 10th. In Pennsylvania, pro-abortion Governor Josh Shapiro is cutting funding for pro-life pregnancy centers. Republican lawmakers in the Commonwealth say they want no part in the budget negotiations. The governor has decided to terminate all funding assistance for Real Alternatives, a group that allocates money to pro-life pregnancy centers throughout Pennsylvania. The spokesperson for Governor Shapiro says that cutting this life-saving funding is a move to, quote, ensure our partners are being good stewards of taxpayer resources. Over the past 30 years, the Commonwealth has given over $30 million to pro-life centers via this program. Moving forward, the clinics that have benefited from it for decades will receive nothing from the government. Eileen Artish, director of the pro-life center St. Margaret of Costello Maternity Home in Pennsylvania, says she'll keep helping women until they're down to their last penny, saying, quote, I can't imagine deserting any of them. Coming up, we're joined by Catholic psychiatrist Dr. Aaron Cariotti as we embark on September, Suicide Prevention Month. He'll provide insight into how we can offer hope to our loved ones in despair. And we bring you the courageous story of Dr. Ashley Womack, who refused to set foot in Planned Parenthood during her medical training and was inspired to design an alternative way to train pro-life doctors like her. You're watching EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Welcome back to our program. As we embark on the month of September, a month dedicated to Our Lady of Sorrows, we also recognize Suicide Prevention Month. Data from the CDC shows that here in the U.S., suicide rates rose by 2.6 percent between 2021 and 2022. Though there was a decrease in suicide rates in the late 2010s, the year 2020 saw suicide rates start to climb again, and they have been ever since. It's also worth noting that data going back more than 50 years shows that historically, suicide rates are much higher for young men than for young women. Joining us now to discuss is Catholic psychiatrist Dr. Aaron Cariotti. He's the director of the Bioethics and American Democracy po Program at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Dr. Cariotti, thanks for being here. I was alarmed when I learned this, that despite more women being reported to have attempted suicide, it's actually young men who have a much higher suicide rate. Why is that? That's correct. It's paradoxical. Women attempt suicide at three times the rate as men, but men complete suicide at four times the rate of women. So of the almost 50,000 suicides that we saw last year in mm -hmm. 2022, 37 of that 50,000 were, uh, were men. And the reason is that men tend to use more violent and definitive means. They tend to uh, use guns, hanging, jumping, uh, whereas women tend to overdose on medications or cut themselves which also obviously can be lethal and fatal. But there is a lag time between the act and when the person 
uh, expires that that allows the person maybe to reach out for help or to call 911 uh, or to change their mind. Right. And people who people who commit suicide are often ambivalent. Part of them um, wants to escape their suffering and they see that they, they come to falsely believe that this is the only way out of that. And if we can reach the, the healthy part of the person that still wants to live, we can reduce the risk of them acting out on those uh, despairing suicidal thoughts. Right, right. And obviously, we're still seeing the effects of our world shutting down back in 2020. Right. Do you think that that's largely to blame for the recent spike that we've seen in the suicide rate? I think it's a huge factor. Uh, it's not the only factor, but the lockdowns and school closures were very significant in terms of increasing people's risk for suicide. We know that one of the key risk factors is social isolation and loneliness. And that's precisely what we did to people of all age groups, really, but particularly young people with school closures and lockdowns is that we isolated them one from another, from, from their peers, from their support group. Mm. Churches were closed. We know that religious belief and practice doesn't completely immunize a person against suicide, but it does very significantly lower a person's risk for suicide if they're tied into a religious community and if they are um, if they are members of, uh, of a religious community that uh, can give them a sense of purpose yes. and hope, help them interpret their suffering in ways that are not, you know, completely just nihilistic or despairing. Uh, all of these things are really important for giving people a, a sense of meaning, purpose, social support and solidarity that are protective against suicide. And with lockdowns and school closures, we abandon those things. Mm. Makes sense. I think it's it's worth noting, though, that suicide rates have, have been trending upward really since 1999. Mm. And so even before the pandemic, there were f social factors probably having to do with a hyper focus on individualism and a, a breakdown of mediating institutions like the family, uh, diminished church attendance, diminished participation in social and civic life. All of these things, I think, were at work prior to 2020. And then we took an already bad situation where we had seen a 20-year trend of rising suicide rates. We sort of poured gasoline on that fire with our response to the pandemic. Right. Sad to say. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. And President Biden issued a proclamation at the beginning of this month, Dr. Cariotti, deline delineating what his administration has done to improve mental health and help people who struggle with suicidal thoughts. Um, but the statistics don't lie. Suicide rates are rising. So in your view, has this administration provided real solutions for these problems? Well, I, I think the efforts they're making are uh, uh, certainly laudable, but oftentimes the efforts focus on intervening at the individual level, which certainly we need to do. If there's a person who's at particular high risk, they need mental health intervention, they need mental health care, maybe in a, a serious suicide crisis, they need psychiatric hospitalization to keep them safe. So all of that is is important. But we also have to attend to the broader social and cultural factors mm. that are contributing to suicide. This is also very key. And unfortunately, I think many of the policies of this administration have continued to um, exacerbate some of those larger social factors from our pandemic response to policies that undermine the family, that undermine uh, people's ability to participate in um, in in communities of civil society, 
freely without kind of the constant intervention of of the state. Mm. So at an individual level, yes, these policies are important. But at the broader societal level, I think there's a lot more that needs to be done. And I would advocate for for a different public policy approach that would really strengthen the family, strengthen uh, religious institutions and other institutions of civil society. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Cariotti, we have about 30 seconds left, but I'm just curious for your take on the fact that we are seeing more places on the coasts kind of masking up again, saying that there's going to yeah. be a surge of COVID-19. If we get to a point where places start to shut down again, what is that going to do when it comes to impacting the happiness and the well-being of the American people? Well, I think that would be a tragedy if that happened again, first of all, because it's not going to achieve its public health purpose. We have plenty of data now showing that lockdowns and school closures did not slow or stop the spread of the virus in any significant way. Instead, they did enormous collateral damage. Mm. So I think if jurisdictions try to do that again, the time for civil disobedience and wide, you know, wide-scale resistance uh, has come because without put, without public pushback, People who accrue power, people who accrue money by means of these kinds of policies are going to continue to try to implement them. I think it's really time to push back for this mm. sake of everyone's mental health. Mm. Well, I appreciate your insight on that. Dr. Aaron Cariotti of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks, Prudence. To close our program, we bring you a look at a special curriculum that teaches physicians how to provide life-affirming care. During her medical training at the University of Texas in Austin, Dr. Ashley Womack was expected to train at Planned Parenthood and watch and assist in abortions. She boldly refused to participate in killing innocent lives and started working on a life-affirming training alternative. With the help of Tim and Pat Von Dolan at the JP2 Life Center, Dr. Womack created the Vitae Family Planning Curriculum. Since its approval in 2020, two doctors have graduated using the curriculum, and the JP2 Life Center hopes to expand the program beyond Austin. We recently spoke to Dr. Womack, and we have that interview for you right now. Dr. Ashley Womack is a licensed OBGYN, and she's a co-creator of the Vitae Family Planning Curriculum. She joins us now to share more. Dr. Womack, thanks for being here. Why did you start this program? Talk to me about how you discovered the need for it. Um, During my training, it's built into the curriculum that uh, the first and second year resident, you go, you have a family planning rotation. So there's different subspecialties of OBGYN that you're expected to learn during your four years of residency training. And... One of those is a family planning rotation where you learn about abortion, complex um, contraception, sterilization, things like that. So uh, it was expected that you go to Planned Parenthood and um, had to go to the powers that be and say, you know, I'm going to opt out of this program. I'm not going to go to Planned Parenthood. And they say, well, that's not an option. I said, okay, well, I'm not going. So, you know, what else is there for me? Like provide me something else because I'm just not going to go. And so they said, well, there's nothing for you to, there's no other option. And so anyway, it escalated, met with the chair of the department. And finally, you know, she said, well, we need you to reach these objectives in order to, to graduate. So, so we have this, this rotation set up. And so I said, okay, well, let me see those objectives. So I said, okay, well, I can get this here, this here, this here. I don't do abortion. So that doesn't matter. So I don't think I need to go to Planned Parenthood. And she said, okay, well, if you can come up with a curriculum, then I'll consider it. <laughs> so I wow. said, sure, let's do that. I'll come up with 
something and you know, just out of necessity, I needed something to do. And so over a weekend, I came up with something really quick and thanks be to God, but there was the VTAE clinic there. And so I asked them if, if they could, you know, be the place where I could go. And they, of course, were very enthusiastic and supportive. And so they helped me with um, figuring out exactly what that would look like. And so I threw something together real quick. It, I think it was, it was really, it took a community because, you know, I had this, this issue going on in residency and then the Von Dolans were there. BTA clinic was there to help mm. support me and other pro-life doctors were there to support me. And so with them being supportive, I think a lot of things happened in the background, you know, sure. faculty escalating it, Tim Von Dolan escalating it. And to the point where I don't know exactly what, how it got there, but with the effort of the community, we came up with a curriculum with reading and, and reading materials and clinical experiences and in order to reach the objectives that, you know, she had outlined before. And so that was implemented the year after I had left residency. Um, and it was a, just a great alternative option. What an accomplishment. And I so admire your courage in standing up to, uh, to the powers that be, as you say. Um, Dr. Womack, we know abortion ends a human life, but there are many in the medical field who believe it's part of their duty to provide it, as your story really exemplifies. Um, talk to me about where you think that misguided belief is, is coming from and how, how you work alongside people who have that belief. That's a great question. It, it It is hard to see where it comes from, but I do see, you know, having worked with those people for four years, I do see that it comes from a place of of, of perceived compassion. You know, they, they think that this is what they're doing good, but, mm. you know, it just comes from a place of not seeing the baby as a, as a human, as a baby. And so there's, it's hard for me to explain exactly why, because there is so much cognitive, cognitive dissonance. Mm with, um, I think people who provide that type of, um, you know, I don't even want to say care, but provide that to patients. Um, so it is, I do understand it at a human level, you know, that they're coming from what they perceive as compassion, but mm -hmm. they're, it's hard for me to understand it just because there's so much dissonance, especially, you know, when you, as an OBGYN, you see babies on ultrasounds all the time. So, it, you know, the, proof is in the pudding. It's right there. You're looking at a baby no matter how you look at it. That's a great point. We have about a minute, but before I let you go, what's your advice to pro-life physicians such as yourself? How do you stay true to your Hippocratic oath in the midst of others who have a very different idea of what that means? Okay. My advice to all pro-life doctors, trainees, or out in practice is it's always worth it to stand up for the truth, no matter what. I mean, we need more doctors to do that and be vocal because it only takes one and, and the rest the rest can kind of follow suit and, snow, and snowball because mm -hmm. once I was vocal in residency, I mean, it was like all these other doctors came out of the woodwork because it was like, oh, now I, I realize I'm not the only one. We all feel like we're the only one until we realize that we're not. And yeah. so all it takes is one person to stand up for the truth. It's worth it every time. And God mul multiplies your efforts. Yeah. Well, it's a miracle. You made waves. Um, Dr. Ashley Womack, thank you so much for joining us and for your courage uh, for the unborn. God bless you. Thank you for having me. Of course. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Don't forget, you can find us at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms. Twitter, now X, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. And if you're interested in more news from our nation and world, go to EWTN.com forward slash pro-life and sign up for our newsletter, The Pro-Life Pulse. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.